Book Two, Chapter Ten of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Lady Bridget had read so far when the door of the bathroom opened and McKeith came out, clean again in fresh riding gear and with a valise ready packed and strapped in his hand. The noise of the cattle became much louder, though the mob was not yet in sight. I wish I hadn't got to go off before the branding, he said. These Breezer Downs people have always wanted to claim every clean skin. Note, clean skin, unbranded calf. End note. You might tell Ninnies and Mungar Bill Biddy to keep a sharp lookout, and now let me have my grub. I'm sorry, dear, to have you hurry up your dinner. He strode along to the dining room, too absorbed in his own annoyances to notice his wife's face or to ask any questions about her letters. Lady Bridget gathered them up and followed him. The Malay boy waited at table with the assistance of a servant girl from Louraville, the only female domestic, with the exception of Mrs. Hensor, on the head station. McKeith swallowed his soup and ate the savoury stew prepared by the Chinese cook with the appetite of a man who had been all day in the saddle. Lady Bridget, who was an extraordinarily rapid eater, as well as a fastidious one, had finished long before he was halfway through. She sat silent at first, while he growled over their outrage upon the horses. Then suddenly, visualising the poor beasts lying stiff in congealed blood, and the mailman's exaggerated description of trees black with crows, she flamed out in wrathful horror, and was as anxious as her husband that the perpetrators of the crime should be brought to justice. He seemed pleased, and a little surprised at the ebullition. "'I thought you weren't taking it quite in, Biddy. I am glad you think like me, though I expect yours is the humanitarian view and mine's the practical one. This touches my pocket, you see.' "'Well, anyway, you won't be so keen now on defending the Unionists.' "'I think they've got as much right to fight for their principles as we have for ours, "'but I don't think they've the right to torture horses,' she rejoined. "'Her sympathy with oppressed shearers and dispossessed natives "'struck always a jarring note between them. "'His long upper lip closed tightly on the lower one, "'and he hunched his great shoulders. "'Well, that sort of argufying won't muster the cattle,' "'he observed dryly, plagiarising Harry the Blower.' She changed the subject. Did you have a good muster? Oh, fair. Between three and four hundred head. The water is still running up in the range. We should have done better if that skunk Wombo hadn't bolted. Lady Bridget leaned forward with interest. Oh, then he has gone after the black gin. Brave Wombo. I wouldn't care a cuss whether he went after the black gin or not. She's a half-caste, by the way, and all the worse for that. And he might stop with her if it wasn't that he knows the country and can spot the gullies where the cattle hide. I've no use for sentiment, especially black sentiment, when it's a case of a forced sale to keep me going. My heavens, there's only one thing, Biddy, that could break me, and it's drought. I believe we're in for a long one, and unless I can make sales quickly and get money to sink new bores on the run, things will go hardly with me. Harry the Blower spoke naked truth for once in his life. Oh, but there's sure to be rain soon. It looked so like it last night she answered lightly looked so like it yes and ended in wind and dust sure sign of drought i must be off here give me the leichardt land chronicle and don't expect me till you see me and by the way biddy i hear there's a unionist organizer going the round of the stations and pretending to parley with the masters don't you be philanthropic enough to let him open his jaws i've told ninnis he's to be hounded off before he has time to get off his saddle "'Colin, you are unjust all round. "'You were very unjust to Wombo. "'Why shouldn't the poor black boy marry as well as you or anyone else?' 
McKeith gave a hard laugh. I'm not preventing him from marrying. I only said I wasn't going to have his gin on my station. You wouldn't listen when he told you that he didn't dare go back to his tribe because his gin's husband threatened to kill him. My sympathies are with the gin's husband. What business has Wombo to steal another man's wife? The husband broke her head with another Noah, and she loves Wombo, and Wombo loves her. I consider that any woman, whether she's black or white, who lives with her husband while she loves another man is committing a sin, said Lady Bridget hotly. McKeith stopped in the act of filling his tobacco pouch from a jar on the mantelpiece and looked sharply at his wife. You think that, Biddy. I remember long ago you said something of that sort to me. It isn't my idea of morality or of justice, but I'm one with you this far. If I'd ever reason to believe that you loved another man and wanted to go off with him, you might go. I wouldn't put out a hand to stop you. And then... And then? She had grown very white. Well, I think I'd make another notch in my gun first, and it would be a previous one, for myself that time. No, you wouldn't, Colin, because you know I shouldn't be worth it, and you are not the man to funk. I'm not. But where you come in, good Lord, mate, what would there be left for me to live for? Her heart thrilled to the old term of endearment, to which in their early honeymoon days she had attached a sentimental value. Of late it had fallen into disuse, and when she had heard him on occasions greet the foreman, maybe of some stray party of drivers or surveyors with the bush formula, Good day, mate, she had felt with deep aggrievement that she no longer desired the appellative. She had not yet realised that while the word mate in Australese, like the verb amer in French, may be used as a mere colloquial term, it implies in the deeper sense a sanctity of relation upon which hangs the whole code of bush chivalry. Oh, Colin! Her eyes glistened with tears. She felt ashamed of her neurotic fancies and her resentment of his lacks in the matter of conventional courtesies, of his outward hardness, his want of sympathy with her ideals. He came to her, taking her two hands while keeping his pipe in one of his own, so that the whiff of the coarse, straw-cut tobacco made her wrinkle her nose and stemmed the tide of emotion. But he did not seem to notice this. No, you're not going to put that theory into practice, mate. I'm not afraid. So we'll leave it at that. And now what's this about the black boy to do with my being unjust to that organiser? There's no beastly sentiment in his case. He's out to make money, that's all. You won't hear what he's got to put forward on his side any more than you would listen to poor Wombo. No, I won't. I'm not taking any, either in gins or in organisers. Let em show their faces here and they'll pretty soon become aware of the fact. Lady Bridget took away her hands and moved to the veranda. Outside, McKeith's horse was waiting. He strapped on his valise, finished ramming the tobacco into his pipe, then going behind his wife, bent downward and hastily kissed her cheek. She did not turn her head. Goodbye, Biddy. Don't you go worrying over the blacks or the unionists, and if you're dull and want a job, there'll be a spice of excitement in helping to tail that mob of scrubbers. I had to hire two stray chaps, we're so short-handed. He went down the steps to the outer paling. Still, she made no response, though now she turned and watched him vault into the saddle. She also saw his face lighten at sight of Mrs. Hensel's boy with the great pawpaw apple. Tommy Hensel was a favourite with the boss. "'Bless you, boy, it's as big as yourself. "'Take it back to the quarters and tell your mother to give you a slice, "'or perhaps her ladyship will cut it for you.' "'He trotted off in the direction of the gully and of the roar of the cattle. "'Lady Bridget could see the heaving backs of the mob "'and could hear the shouts of the stockmen as they rounded the beasts to the crossing. 
Tommy Hensel looked up pleadingly to her, holding out the pawpaw apple. His yellow hair flamed to gold in the sunset. His blue eyes were as bright almost as Colin's. Lady Bridget shook her head. "'No, I don't want you this evening, Tommy. Take that back to your mother.' She settled herself in the hammock and read Molly Gavrick's letter over again. Then she read one from Joan Gildea. Joan was in the full swing of London journalism again. She gave Bridget rather fuller news of Eliza, Countess of Gavrick, and dwelt at some length upon the old lady's interest in Bridget's wild life and in Bridget's husband. "'You may be sure,' wrote Joan, "'that I had nothing but good to say of Colin, and, oh, Biddy dearest, how rejoiced I am to know that he is making you so happy.' I could read between the lines of all your amusing descriptions and sketches of the dream drive. I had my doubts and my fears, as I never concealed from you, but I believe that you have found the true, well-beloved at last. There was a good deal, too, in the letter about Rosamond Tallant, who was in cheerful spirits, it seemed, in spite of the impending operation, and would not hear of Sir Luke's asking for leave to be with her, and so on, and so on. Not a word about Willoughby Maule on his bereavement which, after all, could not be so very recent. Why had Joan never mentioned it? Was she afraid of rousing regret and of awakening painful memories? End of Book 2, Chapter 10